Welcome to Never Rewrite. I'm Isaac Askew. And I'm Jeffrey Sherman. And today we're going to discuss ideas from developers that are red flags. So this topic came up, uh, we were, I was looking in the backlog and I was reminded of some stories from a software company I worked for called Orc Software. <laughs> so first red flag, uh, they were a Swedish company and literally they thought Orc Software sounded funny. Uh, and in Sweden, <laughs> people didn't know who orcs, what orcs were. This is from the 90s. And yeah. so that was fine. And then they made a product and it was a good product and it hit and they expanded into the United States. And then they had to pretend that they were ORC software, which didn't stand for anything because they were really orc software. And so I guess developer red flag idea number one, if you can't, if you, if you, if you're going to be ashamed to explain the name don't use the name. And there's nothing wrong with Orc. I mean... Uh, orc software, man. Sure. <laughs> they were actually a very good options and future spreading platform. Mm. Right. For context not what that, I what, Not what I, what would I... Sorry, not what I would have guessed uh, from the name Orc. It'd probably be like a D&D management software. Right. If they were a D&D <laughs> management software, then it would have been fine. No, they were financial software for day traders basically so they were you know had to be respectable they were in lots of banks huh. and prop shops and, and other things orc had a number of red flags that, that you know stick in my mind is incredibly like how did you decide to do this kind of problems so the first thing they had this is you know early 2000s and they decided to go all in on apple so this is installed software so it only ran on Macs, mm -hmm. and the server also only ran on Mac servers. Not good, because it required that their customers buy Macs. Right. Uh, and Mac servers, because this is, well, even if it was in the SaaS period, you're still doing trading, so you want to be as close to metal as possible. So everything they had ran on Macs. So locking yourself into a specific hardware, uh, an unusual hardware platform is kind of a red flag like yes mm -hmm. it's beautiful it made the software look beautiful which i believe is why they did it but it also made the software very expensive because now every machine has to be a mac yeah it's also very i guess i guess it's kind of what you're getting at here too is this very limiting considering mm -hmm. the time period which i imagine it was still pretty pretty a pretty huge split between like windows and mac right it was mostly windows we're not even talking yeah you know it was Trading firms would be Windows desktop and Linux servers. And right. you're going to come in, you're like, ah, it's all, it's Mac and Mac, man. Mac, Mac desktops and Mac servers. It's like shooting yourself in the foot as far as like the number of people you want to actually cater to for your software. It's a very strange decision. Right. Especially because Mac servers were thinking differently and they were seriously <laughs> difficult to rack. Like they weren't, they, they didn't come in standard like server mount sizes. They were different. So even if you made the sale, you then had to convince them to put the, there was trouble actually putting the machines in the data centers of the customers. App, you know, th this is a time period. Apple had the cube during this time mm -hmm. period, uh, which, you know, overheated and melted the plastic case and other things like that. So, Again, limiting yourself to specific hardware that is not 
doesn't provide you any distinct advantage. Like there was nothing that the Mac could do that you couldn't have done almost as easily on a Windows machine or even Linux. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it would have been hard to make a Linux machine the software look as good. Yeah, but everything that's else. True. The second thing they did, because they're running on on Macs, and this is before Swift, so this is all in the Objective C days. There was something that they wanted to do that they couldn't do. And so they added their own extensions into the into Apple's Objective-C compiler. That's a really, that's generally speaking, a really bad idea. Because then every time Apple came out with an update, they had to re-extend it or just mm. not update to the latest version of the compiler. Which very quickly led to <laughs> very quickly led to them being several major versions behind which then led to needing to, when you set up a new new Mac, new, new yeah. MacBook or client, you then had to downgrade parts of the OS so that you can install your <laughs> software. And you don't have all the bug fixes and security patches too. Like, geez. Yes. And you're like a trading software with no security patches. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. So yeah, they eventually, during the time that I was there, they had a couple of people whose full-time job it was to try and keep or update the compiler or get it close enough so that they could stay somewhat it within tolerances. Mm -hmm. But it was a losing battle. And it was an expensive battle because at this point, you know, whatever the value they got out of extending the, the, uh, the compiler in the beginning and getting whatever beautiful thing it got them, uh, visualization, they're now, they now have two whole developers which working full-time to keep up. You know, so it's one of those decisions yeah. where maybe it was valuable at the time, but the the interest on that decision, that tech debt, is you know substantial. Uh, and again, it, it offered little to no competitive advantage. I say little because I, I hold out that a lot of the value of the software was that it was very beautiful. People liked it, liked the look of it, which theoretically they wouldn't have gotten if they'd used standard Windows packages. <laughs> People love their eye candy. <laughs> they do love their eye candy. And if you're making premium trading software, eye candy is a thing that you can compete on because most of it's butt ugly because eye candy doesn't make you any money. <laughs> if you've ever seen a Bloomberg terminal, yeah. you're like, this, look, this looks like a, you know, a telnet window. It's like, yeah, yeah, it does. It's a telnet window that lets you make a lot of money. The third thing that Orc did is they had an unusual networking set setup. Client, they had an unusual client server setup. So the internet is famously uh, dumb hubs, smart spokes. You push all the functionality to the ends of the, of the internet. The computers at the end of the internet are where all the logic happens. And then it, they push packets back and the packets get routed to another server at the other end of the internet. Conversely, you've got telephone where all the power is in the nodes and not at the leak. So your telephone, you know, going back to plain old telephones, you pick up the phone and you hit a bunch of buttons and then a server on the other side interprets them and places your call and does all the logic. Mm -hmm. Most trading applications are very much, well, all pretty much all trading applications are client server, right? You've got a server and the server has some amount of brains to help the client. And there's some amount, you know, there's a trade-off. Usually you're going to want more of a, um, fat server with a thinner client because the server is closer to the actual trading mm -hmm. systems. So it's going to be faster. It's going to be able to do more processing. 
And the client is just there to keep the humans, you know, control. It's a control play. They went the opposite way. They went the internet model. They had a very thin server, which would push route all the data to the client. So they had the fat client, you know, thin server, fat client, which I've never seen again. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> okay. Well, as a result, every node, every leaf node, every terminal had to get a full market data stream to their desktop. Hmm. So imagine if you are trading IBM futures. And in order to trade the IBM futures, a normal setup would be you tell the server, hey, I'm interested in IBM. The server is mm -hmm. getting the full market data feed. And anytime there's an IBM event, it lets your client know. If you have a thin server, the server gets the full market data feed. It pushes the full market data feed to your computer and your mm -hmm. computer filters for IBM. There's another reason that they needed premium Mac products because it needed to be able to handle a lot of data that it would then ignore. So you've just lost all yeah. of your ability to cache or not cache, but to filter. So like the bandwidth requirements on this thing were absurd. You know, we're talking 2006 or seven and you'd need a full 10 megabits to support <laughs> each terminal. So why, why did they decide to do it this way? Were they just like winging it? Yeah, uh, a lot of it was they made a bad decision at some point. And they never had the ability to go back and revisit those assumptions or decisions. As an example, so, you know, imagine you've made this decision, you're extending the compiler. Mm -hmm. And to get off of that decision, you have to figure out, you either have to rewrite your entire thing, and then Objective-C became Swift. So now you're like, oh, I'm going to rewrite the entire UI in a totally different language, which you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Or you have to somehow figure out how to rebuild just the parts of it that um, matter, right? They needed yeah. those extensions and they just couldn't do it. And they were doing quarterly releases. So these were not like, oh, these were not incremental thinking. It was not an incremental thinking yeah. company. It was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to release every three months and I, I can't have my people spending three months to take out like half of these compiler hacks and then have nothing to show, but tell people to upgrade and then have the next three months. And then, you know, they just couldn't see themselves doing it. And so they never did it. The fat server thing they did, they did recognize that. And they started working towards a more thin solution. But again, they're, uh, the heavy nature of the installed client worked against them or it made it yeah. easy. You could just keep pushing that to the edge and not like you never had to pay the piper on that. And as long as customers were willing to pay and these are financial customers. So you know, you've got somebody paying 15, $20,000 a month for a seat. Yeah. Telling them that, Oh yeah, you need to have, you know, $500 a month worth of bandwidth to support this thing is sure. Whatever. Wouldn't you, if all of your logic was in a, a fat client that was filtering data, wouldn't you just be out of sync? Like, I mean, it seems like you'd be just, if, if you're worried about trading and you're like, you're worried about, like you mentioned being closer to the metal because you want to be executing faster. Mm -hmm. It seems like you, your whole software would just be a slower trading software in general, because you'd be um, milliseconds or however many seconds slower 
due to the nature of like going through and grabbing that data, filtering it, you know, on all on the client side rather than worrying about all of the that being processed server side and being a little bit faster and like returning to you pre-filtered. Yes. Uh exactly right. The thinking about it, thinking it through in my head, the one thing that the no, no, it's still all on the server side. No. Okay, so now I'm remembering. They then there was a second server, which was basic, which was a headless client. Mm -hmm. So you, and again, this is options and futures. So you would set your strategy using your thing, and then it would push your strategy to a headless client, which would be in the data center and would be responsible for updating based on that. So it would be closer. They kind of hybrided it. So a uh, bit of explanation about what I'm talking about. So if you're trading IBM, IBM futures, right? So there's whatever IBM is today, and you think it's going to be 5% better at the end of the month and 0.2% better than that every month going out. Then every time IBM ticks, this piece of software would adjust all of your quotes, your trade, your, your orders based on whatever algorithm you had come up with uh, around what you think IBM is going to be, you know, next month, the month after that, going out 12 months, going out five years, going out 20 years. And it would adjust all those ticks for you automatically. It's called a spreader. And that would let you, you'd have your whole basket of things. And so every time something would tick, it would apply their formula and then change, update all your orders. So that piece, the piece that was actually going to do the, all the updating, that was, it was still the fat client, but mm -hmm. it was a headless fat client that was living in the data center. So it got around that. Again, why is this bad? Most... <laughs> okay. If it's working for them, they're making money off of it. What happened? Well, the fat client never came back to bite them as far as I know. The thing that came back to bite them is they couldn't get the compiler updated, so they were massively behind. Mm -hmm. uh, they were also stuck on Apple because they're using Apple's compiler. And then Apple, as Apple often does, killed the product line. Right? Apple server went away. Mm -hmm. uh, Apple went from Objective-C to Swift and thus the compiler went away you know it didn't disappear but they Apple was not going to be pushing updates and, and fixes so again all those things mean that you were going to have to eventually move uh, you know the most immediately worrisome thing is the Apple hardware went away right Apple's not making yeah. Apple server you can't buy them anymore non-negotiable like you can scramble for the limited amount that's left, but there won't be a new version with more horsepower coming out six months from now. It's gone. So was that not obvious that that line was going to be killed and they could try to do something? I mean, if they're making that much money, 15, 20,000 per seat, they've got cash, they can hire developers. They know Apple's giving you a deadline and when they're killing their servers, you'd think they could come up with some kind of transition plan. You would might think that, but you would be wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So the, the story of Orc, it, it, there's a funny thing here where, so it's a Swedish company and they had, they were exploiting in the US because their software was good or it was valuable to traders. Software was bad, but it was valuable, which is a totally respectable thing to have bad software that solves a problem very well and or it makes people a lot of money. That is a totally respectable um, situation. And so they needed America, they needed Developers who are in the same time zone as their customers. So they hired Americans. And lo and behold, 
Americans are much cheaper than Swedish developers. We get paid slightly less, but we also take a lot less vacation. Uh, Swedish developers uh, get yeah. Swedish people. I, I assume it's all people. All people. They get eight weeks vacation, plus they get the month of August, plus they get between uh, Christmas and New Year's off. That's pretty solid. <laughs> right. Nice. Uh, the American developers only got four weeks of vacation, or was it five? We got four or five weeks of vacation, which to us was amazing. Mm-hmm. To the Swedish developers, they're like, "Dude, you guys are getting screwed. <laughs> You're working so much." So even if they had paid us at the same, I think they paid us a little less. We were still cheaper because we were working four or five more weeks per year. So that this was my stint as a dirty offshore contractor. Well, not dirty <laughs> offshore, cheap developer, uh, trying to break the salary of, of the home guys. And they had a mess. And so they hired us Americans to, to fix the mess. And we did. We, we fixed the mess very well. And then because we had fixed the mess, the Swedish developers weren't doing anything. So they gave them all the new work and they immediately made the same kinds of mess and mistake yeah. that we had just cleaned up. And lo and behold, when we were rolling off fixing the last mess, the, the next project was going to be to fix the ne- new mess. And it's like, uh, I'm not up for this. I uh, can see that, so, you know, generating a bit of uh, uh, ill feelings towards each other. Yes. Uh, you know, having had Americans have come in and say, you know, fix things, they took it as an affront to their beautiful designs and proceeded to recreate their beautiful designs in their next iteration which had all the same problems. So then what happened? Oh, then I left. I, I left. In the <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, was like, I can't do this. I, I can't. I can't clean up your messes. That, well, that's not the job. Well, what I'm getting at, I guess, is like, yes, these things seem bad and stupid when we think about them. But is the company functioning? Are they, do they still manage to make it work? No, they went into a death spiral. Ah, okay. uh, so That's over the next five or six years, they went into a death spiral. Uh, I'm not sure. The last person I knew at the company left 2015, probably earlier than that. Uh, but yeah, they they were a publicly traded company. They went private. They had layoffs. They had layoffs. That, like I don't know if the company is still around at all in any form. I guess bringing it back to the theme of the episode... If a developer comes to you and it's like, oh, well, to solve this, I'm going to need to modify like the date. Like, I need to change how MySQL works so that we can do this thing. That's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, I got you. you know, maybe not if there's a competitive advantage that you see. But generally speaking, if you're like a SaaS developer, modifying the, the database code or the compiler isn't going to get you any right. competitive advantage. Yeah, if you're relying upon it, extending some other kind of established software to get your job done, maybe you're just thinking about the problem wrong, too. Because mm-hmm. many things are already kind of solved, you know. That's generally when we go out and find, like, our own framework or our own package that, you know, we can work on. But if we picked a package or picked a particular framework out there that just inherently didn't have what we needed. And we were extending core pieces of it without like consulting the owners of that framework. Then yeah, you'd be fall into the same mess. Doesn't have to be like uh, this case with a compiler. It could just be like, 
Like if I base something off Laravel and PHP, you know, like the mm-hmm. the, the, Lara, the PHP framework Laravel, and was extending pieces of that to do something, some kind of query builder thing that wasn't there that I really needed or whatever. Um, and then the the owners of that framework came back later and were just pushing new versions of it that were fixing stuff and deprecating things. Then like I've I've tied myself to that package without actually being a core contributor of that framework. That just seems like a, a messy situation. Not to mention the actual software, I mean, the hardware itself being discontinued. It's like a double whammy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To, I guess to generalize the the compiler thing would be if, you, if you're using any third-party piece of software and you need to modify it, I guess either don't modify it or contribute your changes back. Right. But yeah. the idea that you're going to run a fork and then you're going to merge your fork back with the trunk periodically is a bad it's bad a bad path. design yeah right because it in theory if they had you know given apple hey we we changed your compiler which if i remember right required jailbreaking it or something like so it wasn't like apple was going it, i don't believe it was an open source compiler and i don't believe apple would have been happy to hear for real uh, that, yeah. that they had extended it but in, in theory, you know, if you they if it was that case and they had contributed those changes back and Apple had accepted them, then they would have been fine. But because they kept it, the changes private or they couldn't get them merged back in. Yeah. So what's the moral of the story? How do we wrap this up? Uh, the moral of the story is be skeptical of any super technical changes or limiting decisions that don't have a competitive advantage. You know, if you're going to say, oh, I'm only going to support iPhones and I'm not going to support Android. Or more importantly, if I'm going to support Android, but I'm only going to support the Samsung Galaxy. Yeah. That's a very limited, like you could probably get away with, I'm going to be Apple or I'm going to be Android. But you probably can't get away with, I'm going to support one to one company's headset. Handset. Yeah. All right. Any other parting thoughts? No. Uh, Enjoy your summer. I'm Jeffrey Sherman. (laughs) And I'm Isaac Askew. And this is Never Rewrite.